welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. Have you ever felt out of place at the gym? Like the equipment wasn't designed for you or the trainers didn't quite understand your needs? Today we're going to be talking about inclusivity within health and fitness. We're talking to Brendan Aylward, a passionate advocate for creating welcoming workout environments for everyone. Brendan founded ADAPTX to empower fitness professionals to support clients with disabilities and He is the owner of Unified Health and Performance, a gym dedicated to inclusivity at its core. Join us as we discuss the barriers people with disabilities face within fitness spaces, the power of universal design, and how education can help trainers be more inclusive. Let's dive right in to hear from Brendan. Welcome back to the Assembly Inclusion Podcast. Today, we are joined by Brendan Aylward from ADAPTX. Brendan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So before we dive into talking about ADAPTX and all the work you're doing with that, can you share just a little bit about yourself and your background so our listeners can get to know you a little bit? I'm here in Massachusetts, and I own a fitness center called Unified Health and Performance, which is an inclusive strength and conditioning facility, and our adjacent nonprofit, ADAPTX, which is more in the education and research space. The two are synergistic and kind of allow me to work on projects that I'm passionate about which also takes us into the world of endurance sports. I've been involved with Team Hoyt New England, which some of your listeners might be familiar with Rick and Vic Hoyt. They kind of pioneered wheelchair running. So been heavily involved with that for the last nine years. Jacob and I have completed about 100 races together, arranging from 5Ks to marathons. So I was first introduced to inclusion and disability as a whole when I was a sophomore in high school through Special Olympics and Best Buddies. And I was immediately drawn to it, wanted to find a way to make it my career, been fortunate to do so. But I started pursuing special education and then about halfway through university, decided that I wanted to do something similar, but slightly different. So came up with the idea for a fitness facility where my special Olympic athletes could train alongside their peers and spent a few years coming up with a way to make it happen and went to the gym about eight years ago and that's where we're at today. That's awesome. And I appreciate how you mentioned getting into inclusion. I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, myself included, a lot of times Special Olympics became that gateway into more discussions about inclusion and things like that. So it's great that you have that background as well. And you had mentioned you have a physical gym, Unified Health and Performance, which supports all athletes. But what was the inspiration behind then taking that and launching into ADAPTX? So I think it started a couple of years into owning the gym or pretty much right from the get-go. I guess I was obsessed with learning and I found that the best way for me to learn was to kind of teach. So I was making these modules with really no intention of sharing them with anyone, but want to learn about Down syndrome, want to learn about the anatomy and the physiology and how those specific characteristics influenced how they performed in the gym. So I'm just diving into literature, books, whatever I could find. Because even if you have an exercise science background, you wouldn't be learning those things specific to the disabilities. So I was kind of teaching myself, 
ended up making some modules for our interns and our practicum students because we get university students that complete internships with us and I wanted to make sure that they were well equipped to work with our clients. And then it just kind of kept building. I just kept adding to the curriculum. It's probably gone through four or five revisions at this point. I wasn't convinced that I wanted to own multiple gyms, but I was convinced that I wanted more gyms to exist like mine. So my way of doing so was to help trainers become more confident working with people with disabilities. That's where we've identified education, confidence, and being comfortable communicating and coaching people with disabilities as one of the primary barriers uh, to create a more inclusive fitness industry. So that's where the course comes in. That's where Adaptex comes in. We incorporated it as a nonprofit because I don't really have much intention of it being a highly profitable endeavor for myself personally. We reinvest everything back into the business so it reaches more people. So the intention for Adaptex was just to help health and fitness professionals become more comfortable working with people with disabilities so more environments exist for them to train. I, I feel the connection to the creating of the modules. That's something we do here at our platform too is create modules but for teachers for how to better support students with disabilities. So I appreciate the fact that you're trying to educate other people around the world in the same capacity. I'll make sure to link the course in the show notes from your website so people can take a look at that. But you had mentioned some of the barriers that occur within fitness for athletes who may have disabilities. What are the common barriers that typically exist? I know every disability is different. Everybody's needs are different. But what are traditionally some of the common barriers that can occur within the world of fitness? I mean, I think there's no shortage of literature that would say that the physical accessibility, the price point, transportation, things like that. But it's always looking at what the deficits are for the individual instead of looking at what the deficits are in the environment. And I'm sure you're very well versed in the social model of disability and universal design and and some of the stuff that we talked about before the episode, you mentioned usability instead of accessibility. That's something that we talk about in our course, like something can be accessible, but that doesn't mean that it's usable. So getting over that physical accessibility is maybe the first step, but that's just like the ground floor. Once you get into the gym, you still have to have staff that can support the client's equipment that is suited to their needs. For us, I think education is one of the real missing pieces. I'm not we cover ADA standards, we cover accessibility standards, and we cover universal design in the course. And some of that stuff is new to these health and fitness professionals that don't have any disability background. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest barrier is more so with the professionals and the environment than the individuals themselves. So just trying to make them more comfortable, like I mentioned earlier, more confident working with people with disabilities. And then there's also, I think, some misconceptions that inclusion is really reserved only for charities or only for specific organizations. And we've really shown at our gym, we run it as a for-profit entity. And the fact that we're inclusive has been a driving force to a lot of our success as a business. I think more than a third of our revenue comes from people with disabilities. And if we promote that to gyms, they might be thinking like accessibility renovations would be way too expensive. I don't know how to work with someone with Down syndrome and they have those reservations. I think a lot of the time I try to spend convincing them that inclusion is not only a good thing to do, but it's also can be an effective part of your business and make your business a lot stronger. So the primary barriers, I think, are just fitness professionals, reservations. They're not sure where to start. A little bit of fear of the unknown, but that's something that you kind of have to lean into. I don't expect people to have all the answers, but I do expect them to care enough to try to find the answers. I like to put it on the professionals and people in my position more so than the individuals themselves. 
I definitely agree with that. I've seen that from a variety of different fields. It's on the professional to make those changes because that's usually where the barriers seem to lie is within lack of education in other people, not within the individual themselves, but the people around them. So I appreciate the fact that your course focuses on that. As an educator, I love the connection to the universal design for learning framework. I was happy to see that. I was going through your modules and I was like, oh, that's perfect. Cause we talked about that so much in education, but I don't see that carried over into other fields. So it's great that you're bringing it into the world of fitness. Even models of disability, I think are covered and maybe special ed, but a lot of the personal trainers and coaches that we work with really have no concept of the social model versus the medical models. Medical model is kind of standardized in and said like everyone should exist and strive for this degree of normalcy. And there's obviously so much deviation outside that normalcy and just introducing people to that social model of disability where it's not the individual's impairment, but it's the environment around them uh, that is disabling. That just turns a switch on for some people like, oh, maybe I should stop looking at what's wrong with the individual and start introspectively looking at what's wrong with my environment, my program. So I think introducing people to those concepts is important. Oh yeah, definitely. That mindset shift is huge. So I appreciate the fact that your course really dives into those frameworks to look at so that people can really start to make those adjustments. You know, there are a lot of courses that go into, this is what a disability might look like, but I appreciate the fact that you're focusing around those lenses of here's what you should be doing to create a better environment. So to that end, I was curious, could you walk us through some of the courses that ADAPTX offers? What does a typical course look like? Currently, 18 modules and probably all together about 12 to 14 hours of content. And we start with models of disability, introducing people to that social versus that medical model, going into ADA standards and accessibility strategies. We talk about universal design. Next, I believe, is module three. And we go into communication and we talk about the different learning styles, talk about multiple means of representation and how you kind of communicate with clients. So we talked a little bit about cueing and various things that might be beneficial for individuals with intellectual disabilities. I think a lot of adaptive fitness space, like you see the physical disabilities, but you don't always see the intellectual. We work with a ton of individuals with autism and, and various intellectual disabilities, neurological disabilities. So I think serving that population as well is important for us. But uh, then we go into modules on some specific diagnoses. Can't make generalizations across all, but we'll do like Down syndrome, CP, autism, multiple sclerosis, Ehlers-Danlos, spina bifida, a couple others. And then we'll talk about how to modify exercises for people with mobility impairments. So someone that uses a wheelchair, different GMFCS levels. So whether someone's manually propelling a wheelchair, electrically propelling a wheelchair, different variations there. We'll talk about with hemiplegia that can only use one hand, like what are some training strategies to make sure they can access everything in the gym. So we go like principles and frameworks at the beginning, go into some specifics about the disabilities and then go into application in a fitness environment. We have a bunch of guest presentations from various colleagues and friends of mine that kind of supplement their curriculum. We've started doing our podcast as well, just to bring different voices to it. Some kind of like some co-designing of various topics and people with spinal cord injuries and various disabilities so they can share their stories and their experiences as well. So I tinker with it all the time. I think initially I was kind of holding it tight to myself and I was like, well, I'm going to release it when it gets to this point. And at some point, I think you are always going to tinker with it, but I've made a commitment, I guess, that we'll always revise it, always try to improve it. So it's not just like a stationary thing. It's a little more dynamic. And that's great that you're continuing to adapt it, even though it's already been released, because I always feel like 
even as I do all these interviews and discussions and all my reading and things like that, there's always something new that pops up. So it's great yeah. that you're continuing to revise and edit as new ideas, new suggestions, new research pops up. Another expert comes in with another idea. I think that's great and obviously very beneficial for the people who are participating in the course. So what have you heard back as feedback for the course so far from other trainers who have been you know, looking to learn more and make their gyms or their physical fitness spaces more inclusive? I think positive, but at the same time, I don't know how many people would necessarily give like negative feedback. That's one thing that like sometimes <laughs> I think you live in a little bit of an echo chamber in my line of work, but there's always ways that I can improve the course. So I'm always looking for that critical feedback, but we've kind of found a few different, like we work with a lot of YMCAs. They have a similar mission of making fitness accessible at like a price point level and a physical environment level. So that's been a great relationship. We've worked with a lot of the New England YMCAs uh, up here in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. We've worked with some universities. So we've had a handful of universities where there are student trainers, like in the rec centers, staff and students have taken the course as well. And my goal with that was I would love for rec centers to be more accessible and for students on campus with disabilities to be able to access them and get the necessary support. I think there's a couple barriers there. There's like a lot of staff turnover. So maybe someone will be a trainer when they're a junior or senior, but then they graduate. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time to kind of break into those universities, but we've gotten to work with like Michigan and Arizona schools that have great adaptive sports as well. So that's been a lot of fun. And at the very least, it's introducing aspiring health and fitness professionals to these concepts. So when they graduate and go out into the field, they can kind of adopt some of these ideas. Even if it doesn't happen at the university, I'm hoping that they'll be able to execute it in whatever career they end up in. But I guess one of the goals with the course is to find people that want to open gyms like mine. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm not really interested in having a lot of locations, but I am interested in helping a lot of trainers run their own model of inclusion. So our goal is to teach people how to do that. And we're kind of in the early stages of that. Every course that we've sold currently has been organic just through the content I've put out. But now that we've gained some traction, we'll, we'll put a little bit more money behind marketing in the next year and see how many people we can reach because the course can be as good as possible. But if it doesn't reach anyone, it doesn't matter how good it is. So We'll start to put a little more effort behind the marketing side. I just hired some people to help me with that. So. And I noticed too, correct me if I'm wrong, I saw in your courses that part of some of the modules includes like office hours. So is that an opportunity for you to kind of synchronously connect with the people who are taking the course to work with them on that goal of making yeah, their space more inclusive? Yeah, we've tried to figure out what the best way, and, and maybe you can even kind of give me some insight into what you've had success with, but making it asynchronous, I think is appealing to a lot of people, but at the same time, I don't know if it's the best learning experience and the best learning experience ultimately is for like our interns, the ones that take the course and also get the hands-on piece at my gym, but that's not available for everyone. So we've been trying to figure out like what creates the best actual learning experience. So we've done office hours where people can schedule calls with me. We can talk through specific things. We've done office hours with experts and bring them in and people can attend those presentations and ask questions if they want. But it's like trying to find the balance between making it self-paced and asynchronous so as many people as possible can take it, and then also making it as interactive and engaging as possible. We were doing five-week cohorts, but one thing I was running into was 
someone would inquire about the course and I would say like, great, the next cohort starts in four weeks. And then I would kind of like lose them a little bit. So we're like, oh, well, if it's just always available and I made a lot of revisions to try to make it more interactive and asynchronous, we use something called Padlet, which is discussion boards. And we have case studies where people submit programs and I write feedback to them based on those programs. So trying to improve like the interactive piece of it while also making it asynchronous is, has been a challenge, but I think it's an important one, especially as we scale and try to reach more people. It is important that people it relatively independently. But just making sure that they actually learn what I want them to learn and actually uh, apply and have mastery of the content. So that's always a challenge. I struggle with that too, because I started to do the cohort model for some of our you know, courses. It, it, it's hard. Yeah. Because people are interested and then it's like, oh, come back in you know, two weeks yeah. or a lot of times I have educators that are taking it and they're like, I just didn't have time with the end of a marking period. Right. I got caught up. I didn't finish. And it's like, We'd have different time zones and I would try to do a weekly live presentation and then I would do it at 7 p.m. There might be 15 people in the cohort and only two or three are on the live call. I'm like, well, if I'm reserving some good content for this live call and only 10% of the cohort is on it, like I, I need to find a way to get that content into the course. So we did record a lot of new presentations over the last six months and and tried to make it as comprehensive as possible. But it's always a process of revising and improving. Figuring out what works, it's challenging. The self-paced is beneficial because, I mean, I mean, the whole point, right, is to vary and meet the needs of all learners. It's flexible pacing, which is great, but yep. it's, it's hard to balance. <laughs> so I did want to talk to you about, you had mentioned uh, your gym a few times and how it's this inclusive space where all athletes are training and practicing together. How does the curriculum for ADAPT-X leverage your gym as like a model for creating a, an inclusive training environment? Are you bringing in like examples from your own gym when you create the modules? I know you had talked about doing the hours and talking to people virtually, but how do you kind of leverage the connection between your physical gym and the online curriculum? I think ADAPT-X is a consolidation of the literature that we've reviewed, the current body of literature, which has a lot of gaps Sometimes it's tough to run interventions within physical fitness and physical activity for people with disabilities. It's tough to get people to commit to 16-week programs where they have to drive to some sort of uh, university setting. So we kind of take current literature, take what we found to be successful at the gym, combine it. We try different things at the gym. If it works well, add it to the course. I found myself like every podcast episode that I record, like I take the key takeaways that, that I found insightful, add them to a Word doc, and then I find ways to try to implement them within my brick and mortar facility. So I think AdaptX is definitely heavily influenced by our gym. But at the end of the day, I want to learn from as many sources as possible. So I think our gym is kind of like a, a think tank and reading ground to try out some different ideas, try out different things. But also a lot of the content in the course is, is filmed from our clients. So seeing our athletes with cerebral palsy training, seeing our clients with spinal cord injury and stroke, et cetera, training, all that content typically comes from our members at the gym. So I uh, definitely have a lot of influence by that as well. And that's great too, from the, the training of the trainer perspective, because they can see firsthand that it's working. I mean, because so often you hear like it's working and it's great, but actually seeing it, that's probably going to create a lot of buy-in from trainers to see like, oh, this is what it looks like. Look how successful it is. I can see what it looks like and not just read about it. So that's great that you kind of integrated the two together. 
I did want to talk to you about too, you have a research lab, right? In the actual gym. So can you share a little bit about that? The lab seems like it's really overselling this. It's like <laughs> a, a little space adjacent to where I'm sitting right now. We moved to a bigger building last August, so two Augusts ago. And in this space now I have our facility, which is kind of like a warehouse type of space. And then we have office spaces out front. We have a physical therapy clinic here out front. But the research lab ended after Rickoit because of his influence on me and because I think a lot of my interest is in cerebral palsy, which is what Rick's diagnosis was, as well as Down syndrome, which the individual that I race with has. So we have some technology here, body composition, force plates, VO2 max testing. And then our research director for the nonprofit, who I work with on all the projects, he's faculty at Mass College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. He's a doctor at the physical therapy program over there. So he helps me with IRB approval, fleshing out concepts, fleshing out program design and research study design. Because that's not really like, I love being involved with academia, but I didn't really have advanced degrees. I got my bachelor's. And then beyond that, there wasn't really any incentive within the private sector of getting an advanced degree. I kind of dictate what I want my employees to be certified in. I kind of dictate what I want to learn. I like staying involved with the research side of things. We've had one publication on cerebral palsy. We have one pending right now, another one on cerebral palsy, pending for the Journal of Neurological PT. And then we're submitting a grant for a high-intensity interval training program for individuals with Down syndrome. The research space is, I guess, just kind of our commitment to also contributing to the body of the literature. Anecdote is great, like what I found to work at my gym, but I also want to make sure that it is valid and reliable. I think sometimes the issue with research, though, we've been working on this Down syndrome grant for like five or six months. And if I didn't do it as a formalized research, I could have just started the programming six months ago and I could have already had like a result by now. So I think there's a balance between informal research and formal research. And we just try to stay involved with it. It, it helps me refine some of my skills and learn new things. So it's been good. And then Rick gave me his blessing uh, to name it after him. So that just means a lot to me in that regards. That's a great point about the balance between the practical application versus the research. I mean, all my research has been in technology. And the terrible thing about that is that by the time it comes out and it's published and it's in a journal, it's like not even current anymore. <laughs> and the platform has updated 20 times and it's like, well, this is irrelevant now. <laughs> great. <laughs> so I appreciate that you're, you know, continuing to stay in the body of research, which is very important. You know, it's important to know what works, but then also in your course and incorporating just the practical, like, we tried this and it was successful. So I appreciate that balance because it's hard to fully be one way or the other. So I think a lot of people that are maybe 100% in research aren't running facilities like mine and aren't really seeing how it works. We've had this Down syndrome grant reviewed by a bunch of Down syndrome researchers. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, people with Down syndrome struggle with exercise. What makes you think that they'll be able to high intensity exercise and I'm like well if you came to my gym you would see that our athletes with Down syndrome don't really struggle with exercise you're just looking at the body of literature that says oh people with Down syndrome aren't as active as their peers and yeah obviously there's no opportunity for them to work out so it's like sometimes the literature comes to these conclusions which are accurate but they don't really look at what's led to that conclusion which is to us, there's not enough opportunities, there's not enough professionals that are certified and comfortable working with those clients. At the end of the day, I think the course 
is going to be my biggest impact, hopefully. And then the research is kind of supplements. Yeah, I, I, I could see that being, being beneficial. So looking ahead, what are some of the future goals that you have for Adaptex? Are there any specific initiatives or anything that you are planning to work toward? And how do you envision the organization making a positive impact or continuing to make a positive impact toward inclusive fitness? I think growing the team so we can reach more people. I tend to work a little bit on my own. So trying to figure out how to more effectively delegate and bring more people in that have good skill sets so we can reach more people. But yeah, I think the the top tier goal is just to quote unquote certify as many professionals as possible. I like to say that we're not necessarily like a certification People want to like add a title to their resume, which is perfectly fine. So you can say that you're an Adaptex certified trainer, but that doesn't really mean anything until Adaptex is like a well-known name. So there's some, I guess, struggles with like certifications where a lot of those companies are kind of cash generating companies where they try to require you to certify, recertify every couple of years and do things like that. For me, like I just want to create the most comprehensive educational platform possible. So I'm sure a lot of people say, oh, we're not revenue driven, but at the end of the day, I'm not really revenue driven. It's like how many people with disabilities are training because of my work. That's not to say it's not important to make money. Obviously, the more money the course generates, the more we can market it, the more people we can reach, the more athletes can benefit. So I think top tier goal is just to certify as many people as possible, gather good data on how many people with disabilities are benefiting from those new offerings. So if a coach takes the course and then they start an adaptive fitness program, like how many individuals with disabilities are now training. So yeah, publications just to kind of hold me accountable and try to improve the education that we disseminate, but reach as many people as possible with the course. I think I mentioned earlier, hopefully that connects me with people that have similar passions to me, and then maybe I can help them open a gym like mine. So the goal is not to have X number of gyms, but if that comes up, because people take my course and they want to open a gym like mine because they see it in the course and I would definitely explore that with them but I love everything I work on now so I work every day and just kind of keep growing it as well as I can I think that's a great variety in the goals too to really reach a wide amount of people I don't see much of a benefit of putting a specific number on it like we want to certify 100 people this year it, it will be the sum of the actions of what we do every day. So making sure that those are aligned with that larger mission of helping as many people with disabilities as possible. My last question for you really is just to kind of sum it up. What message do you have for trainers, gym owners, or just individuals who are interested in becoming more inclusive within the world of fitness? I think inclusion is not just something reserved for a specific subset of people. It's not reserved for people who had an extensive background working with Special Olympics and Best Buddies, like any business can be more inclusive and any business can benefit from being more inclusive and accessible. I think oftentimes people will say, well, there's not people with disabilities in my area. And that's just not true. And you never know, I guess, how many people you can reach until you start making those efforts. You won't be accessible for everyone initially, but you can be reactive and proactive in making sure you are able to support their needs as they arise. So I think just the more confident people can be in supporting people with disabilities, the more likely they are to adopt these practices within their business. But inclusion is profitable too. It's not just goodwill. It can be an essential piece of any business. I think that's a message that's not always communicated, at least in my world. And 
it's it's one of the largest minority groups in the world, people with disabilities, and it's a huge market size. And you know, in an industry like fitness that's becoming diluted with all these commercial gyms popping up, it's a great way for you to stand out in your community and really just kind of communicate to your members that you care about people and, and you want to support them in whatever way possible. So being an Adaptex coach or going through our curriculum is, is going to make people a better coach for all populations, not just adaptive ones. I think that's really good advice. And, and that's a great point about, you know, going through that training doesn't necessarily mean you're just going to be a good trainer for an athlete who has a disability. It, it's good for everybody. Everybody learns differently. So it's good to have a knowledge of different needs and adaptations and things like that. And I think that's something a lot of people tend to miss when I talk to people yeah. about inclusion. <laughs> I mean, I think a couple of easy examples, like we have someone out in the gym right now who just tore his ACL and he's able basically to take a program that I wrote for one of our wheelchair users and adapt it for his level of strength and give him that program or someone breaks a wrist and they're in a cast, but they want to keep training. It's like, okay, I've trained a half dozen athletes with hemiplegic CP and I know all these strategies to modify exercises for people who are, only have access to one limb. Let's keep them training, keep them active. So we work with a ton of high school collegiate athletes and always making modifications. And a lot of times those modifications are influenced by experiences that I've had working with people with disabilities. So like I said, I think it makes you a better coach for all populations and kind of makes you a lot more adaptable and teaches you how to modify environments for whatever needs arise. It gives you a lot more strategies than to pull out from your toolbox when you need them when you're in a session. I, I say the same thing in the classroom all the time. I'm like, these strategies are not just pinpointed to people with disabilities. You can use this with any student who's struggling with a concept because everyone struggles with something at some point in time. You want to have some variety in how you're teaching people to do things. So yep. That's a great point. I think that's really important. So I want to thank you so much, Brendan, for being here with us today, for talking to us all about AdaptX and all the work that you're doing with your gym and with this organization as well and your research. And I'm going to make sure to link the course, your website, everything in the show notes so everyone can pop in and take a look. But thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.